This is episode 478 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. In the Christian life, surrounded by our brothers and sisters who, like us, have often failed in our walk with Christ, we sometimes try to define sanctification as simply stumbling forward. We hear sermons Sunday after Sunday that tell us what we need to do to grow closer to Him or to bear His fruit, but they never seem to tell us how. And we are left feeling like we have to put together some sort of dresser from Ikea without any instructions. But the Christian life, once we know the how to do what we must do, is much more than stumbling forward. And the key is knowing how to do the things we know we must do or how to obey the commands of Christ that we struggle with. For example, how to live by faith, how to be filled by the Spirit, how to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh, how to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, how to lay down my life as a living sacrifice, how to have victory over sin, how to pray without ceasing, how to rejoice always in every situation, how to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, how to experience the peace of God, how to hear God's voice, how to have God's Word become alive to me. Do you get it? There's so many how questions in the Christian life, and there's so little teaching on how to answer them. So join us today as we take one simple promise from God, I will never leave you nor forsake you, from Hebrews 13, and use it to grow our faith in Him by believing and living victorious in that belief. After all, it's so much better than stumbling forward and then trying to convince ourselves that this is really the abundant life Jesus promised. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. I was going through some of the struggles people have in the Christian life. I was listening to some sermons, and we have a tendency of talking in Christianese. We have a lost person in here, and we're talking about atonement and propitiation and and just surrender your life to Christ or ask Jesus into your heart. I mean, what does that even mean? And I'm, again, I'm, I'm reminded of that incredible scene in The Chosen where Peter has given his life to the Lord and he comes back to tell his wife that he's going to be following the Messiah now full time. And she, of course, is you know, stepping on grapes and making grape juice or whatever it is, and he's trying to have his conversation with her, trying to describe what's happened to him. And he he gets really excited and he goes, and he says, I'm not going to be a fisherman anymore, that I'm going to be a fisher of men. And I don't even know what that means. Yeah, we wouldn't either. I want you to be a fisher of men. Mentally, we're thinking, what, like we throw a net and catch these cadavers? I, mean, I don't even know what that means. And sometimes in the Christian life, we're, and I'm guilty of this, we talk about what we need to do and never tell people how to do it. We tell people about the big pictures. These are the things we need to do to surrender our life to the Lord, to commit to the Lord. These are the, the questions that are the statements that we need to make. And everybody has a question after that is, I got that, but how? How do I do that? I mean, how do I live by faith? I know I'm supposed to. I know I, I'm, that's the desired goal. I see pictures and read stories about other people who live by faith, but nobody, I don't know anybody who lives by faith. There's no symposium I can take about living by faith. So how is that done? Can you give me a recipe? Can you give me some steps? Can you give me some bullet points? How does someone live by faith? Oh, I understand that I'm supposed to be filled by the Holy Spirit. There are times in my life when I have been and times that I'm not, and the times with the Spirit are always better. But how does that happen? How does that work? What do I do to make sure that I'm filled with the Holy Spirit? And if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, how do I, as the Bible says, walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh? It seems in my own life I walk a lot according to the flesh, and I realize what I'm doing. I try to walk according to the Spirit, but how does that happen? How does that happen at work? How does that happen at Walmart? How does that happen when I'm having a tough dis discussion with my spouse or, or with my children or, or just as I'm seeing things on television and, and I feel this thing boiling up inside of me? How is that done? I know I should. I know I must. But how do I do that? And how do I take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? 
How do you control your thought life? How do you make sure that those selfish, narcissistic, hateful, unforgiving, worrying thoughts don't cloud your mind? How was that even done? How do I lay my life down like Romans 12 as a living sacrifice? I mean, what does that look like? What does that feel like? Is this something I physically do? Do I, is it a prayer that I pray? How committed do I have to be to actually say that I've done this? Tell me how it's done. How do I get victory over sin? I have victory over some sins, but then I have these besetting sins like worry or doubt or fear or unforgiveness or whatever it is that I can't get over. And I know I should do that. I know I must do that. But how? The Bible says to pray without ceasing. I have a hard time praying more than 10 minutes. How do I pray without ceasing? How is that done? Do I have to close my eyes? Is it an attitude of prayer? Is it really words that come out of my mouth? What do I do to be able to fulfill these requirements, these admonitions, these commands of Christ? How in the world am I to rejoice always in every single situation, no matter how bad it is, a death in the family, a disaster that takes place? How do I rejoice in all of that? How in the world do I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? The promise we hear about all the, all the time, then God will take care of all your needs. Well, I want him to take care of my needs, but I don't even know how to meet the if condition here. How do you seek first among everything the kingdom of God? I've heard sermons on it. I felt guilty because I'm not doing it. I've been told this is what I need to do. Jesus says I need to do this. How in the world do I do that? And how do you experience this peace of God? Talks a lot about that. This surpasses all understanding, will guard my heart, my mind, and everything about me according to Christ Jesus. But okay, that's the big picture. What are the steps? How is that done? What am I supposed to do? And how in the world am I supposed to hear God's voice? I don't even know what he sounds like. Is it something in here? Is it something I read in Scripture that that just feels right? Is it a peace that I have or, a, or a, a trouble that I have that I shouldn't do? Is it is it an audible voice? Is it, I mean, how is that? How is it even done in my own life to hear God's voice? And then when I look at his word, why is it so hard, so dull, so like, like studying for an exam that I don't really care about, it's like an elective I took in college? I mean, how does God's word become real to me? Because if it was real to me and I did hear his voice and I had his peace and I had surrendered my life to him and I was walking according to the spirit because I was filled with the spirit and I was learning to live by faith and my faith was growing, I'd have no problem with any of this. And I know what I should do and I know what I must do and I know what I feel guilty about not doing, but no one has ever sat down and told me how to do it. And you know, that's really true. Most of the preaching for the last several hundred years have been on the do's and don'ts, the benefits of doing, and stuff of that nature, doctrine and theology, trying to ground us in the faith. And very little of it is based on the hows. So many how questions in the Christian life, and so little teaching on how to practically do them. And I think one of the reasons is that the people preparing the sermons, the people that are leading the church, the pastors, the evangelists, the guys that write the books, don't know themselves. They're like we all are, just stumbling forward because there's so much of the world in our lives, there's so many demands we have that it's really hard to take whatever time's necessary to be able to um, answer these how questions. Well, we're going to be doing some of those. First one we're going to be talking about today, and we're only going to be talking about a small segment of that because this isn't one of those deals where you can just, you know, here's three points and you're done. We're going to look at just one way to begin the process of living by faith. Why is that important? We're not talking about the faith, the body of Christian belief. We're talking about the actual active faith that, rely, that resides in each of us. Faith that we can exercise, faith that we can trust, faith that has an object. And that object, of course, is the Lord and his word. We've talked about that in, in previous messages about the fact that all of us exist by faith, faith that the traffic lights 
We'll turn faith at the chair. We'll hold us up. Faith at the airplane. Well, we're getting on on a business trip. We'll actually make it there. We all live by faith. But it's the object of this faith and our commitment to that faith that literally changes lives. So here's just a couple quotes from um, some very noteworthy men about faith. Faith is acting as if something is so. Dallas Willard is acting as if what the Bible really says about you is true. What What the Bible really says God will do, he will do. And faith is believing that it's actually going to flow through that. Corey Tin Boom, one of my spiritual heroes. Faith sees the invisible, believes the unbelievable, and receives the impossible because that is where God dwells. That is where God exists. That is the manifest supernatural aspects of our life. Oswald Chambers. Faith is deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you may not understand at the time. I don't have to have an answer. I just have to trust him. My favorite quote ever from Oswald Chambers, a life-changing event in my own life about 23 years ago when it really became real to me, January 2nd. Are you asking God what he's going to do? He will never tell you. He doesn't reveal to you what he's going to do. He reveals to you who he is. This is my character. This is my nature. Your faith is not based on what I claim to do. Your faith is based on my goodness and my perseverance and your trust in me. Martin Luther, pray and let God worry. Ah, Boy, is that appropriate for today? Just pray and let God worry. And then finally, of course, the prince of all preachers, Charles Spurgeon, who sometimes his sermons are, are difficult to read. However weak we are, however poor, however little our faith, however small our grace may be, our names are still written in his heart, nor shall we lose our share in Jesus' love. In other words, our faith in him and his faithfulness to us is not based on our ability to perform. It's based on his ability to keep to his word. That's why the scripture says we're not holding on to him, but Christ is holding on to us. Matter of fact, I think I heard that in a song today. That, uh, that, you know, you're in my hands and my father's hand and no one is greater than him and no one can snatch you out of our hands. It's faith. How does our faith grow and how do we learn to live by faith? Again, we've looked at this verse 15 times. We're just going to quickly go over it one more time. It is the definition of faith found in Hebrews chapter 11. And following this definition of faith is a list of Old Testament and New Testament personalities who have persevered during terrible times because of faith. Sometimes they messed up and they lost their faith and then God restored them. Sometimes they stood firm. And there's this testimony that chapter 12 tells us is this great, surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses proclaiming the glories of Christ and the benefits of faith, helping us run with exuberance and unencumbered this race that is set before us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Definition of faith. Now, faith, which means firm persuasion, conviction, or belief in the truth. It's, uh, it means faithfulness. It, the, the word, of course, is pistis. It's our, our, our belief in something, the belief in the fidelity of my marriage, the belief in the love for my children, the belief in the reality of my God. It's the object of our faith that matters. Now, faith is the substance. It's that which underlines the apparent. It's the bedrock. It's the assurance. It's the confidence. It's it's that which our faith is based on. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. I've shared this with you before. This is not wishful thinking. This is not coming up with a wish list. This is not just a pipe dream. This is, when it talks about hope for, it means a confident expectation. It is also the evidence, the manifestation of that truth of the things purposely designed for us not to see them. Remember Oswald Chambers' quote, 
Faith is believing something, deliberately believing something as true because of the character of God, even though you don't understand it and even though you don't see it today. We have a tendency to think seeing is believing, but through faith, believing is seeing, and it's totally different. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the foundation, it's the conviction, the manifestation of that truth, the evidence of things that I don't see. Because if I see, I'm believing on what I see versus what I know to be true because I understand the character of God. And the best way to live by faith and have your faith grow is to believe in the promises that he has given you. Do you know how many promises there are in the Bible? Over 3,000. It is absolutely a book of promises. Now, some of those promises were to the nation of Israel. Some of those promises were to individual people. And if they believed in those promises, God blessed them immensely. Like Abraham, you will have a son. I don't quite believe it. I have to take matters into my own hands. Some of those promises are to the church in general. Some of those promises are to you and to me. Principles that are there. And if we believe those promises bedrock belief, like I know they're going to be true even though I don't see it, even though it looks like things are getting even worse, even though it, it, I, I just can't conceive in my mind how this possibly could work out. That's how our faith grows, and that's how we learn to live by faith, faith in God's promises. So I need to, to learn how to trust in his promises, but How? I need to learn to rely on him and not on my own understanding. I remember reading a verse that says that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So Proverbs chapter 3, I know I should, but how? How am I supposed to do that when the problems are right here and God sometimes doesn't answer? Actually, most of the time in my life doesn't answer when I think I need him. He answers when I truly need him. Understand the difference? I must learn to let him work out all the details, no matter whether they're good or bad, no matter how, how bad they are. Paul never understood that in the beginning of his prison ministry, that all of a sudden God threw him in jail or God allowed him to be thrown in jail. Well, what am I supposed to do here? I should be out there doing what I've do, done for the last 40 years. I need to be out there building churches, out there talking to people. No. If I left you out there, you would have never written the letters that you did. And so the Lord allowed something in the flesh horrible to happen to Paul for the greater good. Did Paul understand at the beginning of his prison ministries? You don't pick that up in the first couple letters he wrote, but you do towards the end. I must learn how to say yes and not the questions we're so prone of saying, why? What for? How long? That doesn't seem fair. Why are you doing this to me, God? Why not to that person? I mean, if you really loved me, why are you allowing this to happen? Because I would never let that happen to my children. What a horrible thing to say about God, that our standard of righteousness and love is greater than his. By faith, we must learn to see by believing and not see in order to believe. Well, how was that done? I see those. I understand how that's supposed to happen, but I got that. I, I understand that. I know what I must do, but how do I do what I know I must do? Have you ever been there? You ever asked those questions? How, how do I do that? How was that done? A couple verses later, we find this phrase, this statement in Hebrews 11. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. Why? For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and his character is such that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Uh, okay, I read that in the scripture. Well, the question is this, do you believe it? I mean, seriously, do you actually believe what it says? Do you, well, I, I think, but I'm not really sure exactly what it says, but if I knew exactly what it said, then I know I would believe it. And okay, then if you know you believe it, what does that mean? Every one of us is on a different track. Every one of us has different problems. Every one of us struggles with different hurts and misunderstandings. 
every one of us is different, yet God is the same yesterday and today and forever. So if I understand what the promise says, then what does it mean to me right now, today, in my circumstances? I cannot answer that for you. I can only answer that for me. So what does it mean? Well, first, let's figure out what it says. But without faith, in other words, if you don't have faith, it is, here is one of those scary words, like never, it is impossible. Well, no, no, it's kind of possible. It just doesn't happen often. It's not what it says. Well, it's impossible for some people, but not impossible for other people. That's not what it says. It is impossible for everyone, everyone who calls the name of Christ, everyone, for Billy Graham, for the Apostle Paul, to me, to you. It is impossible without faith to please him. Well, can't I just work real hard? Can't I just read my Bible all the time? Can't I go to church and tithe 20% of my money? And can I go out soul winning? Can I do all these good works? Won't that be pleasing to him? Not without faith. Not without a belief in him. Not without a purpose behind of all of that. It says, but without faith, it's an impossible to be well-pleasing or to take pleasure in him. Why? Why is that? It's really simple. For he who comes to God, that word means to approach or to come near. I want to draw near to God. I want to approach God. I want to be intimate with God. I want to talk to God and have him talk back to me. I want to hear his voice. I want to learn to walk by faith. I want to learn to take every thought captive to the obedience of him. I want to do all of these things. I just by drawing closer to him. And it's impossible for me to please him if I don't have faith because everyone who comes to him, here's another word, must, not maybe, not should be, not sometimes, and he'll cut some slack and grade on a scale. Must is absolutely necessary. You must believe that he is. What? I mean, what to believe he exists? Yeah, it does mean that. Believe that he is who he says he is. Believe that he has the character and nature that he claims to have. Believes that he is the I am that I am. I love that. Who do I tell the people who don't know you what your name is? He didn't say Jehovah. He didn't say Yahweh. He didn't say Elohim. He didn't say the Lord God Almighty. He didn't say any of those names. I am that I am. What does that mean? I am the ever-present one. I am the one that exists. I am the one that has always been. I am that I am. It is what it is. That's who I am. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For every one of us who have a desire to approach God, to come close to God, must believe, we must have trust and faith and be firmly persuaded that he is who he says he is. And one of his characteristics and promises to encourage us to come to him. He is a rewarder of those who seek him out diligently, not haphazardly. Diligently. The word means to search diligently or literally to seek him out like you're searching for him. You know, why should I even approach God? Because he is who he is. His promises are laid out for us. He's faithful and he's just and he's true. And that's his nature. And I have to believe that he is the great I am, that this is who he is. And not only that, but if I do approach him with faith, I'll not only be well-pleasing to him, but the effort that I put in, the devotion that I put in to have that kind of relationship with him, he will reward me for that. That's just his nature. And why would we not want God to bless us with maybe more intimacy of him when we diligently seek him? Now, that's what it says. So here's what it means. It means without having faith, you cannot 
under any circumstances, no matter how hard you try, according to this passage, be pleasing to him. Your actions may be pleasing. Your attitude may be pleasing. I'm really pleased at your devotion to me by studying the word or going to the temple seven times a day or doing a lot of stuff the Pharisees did. I really I appreciate your commitment, misguided and self-seeking, but nevertheless, your commitment. But to be well-pleasing to God can only be done through faith. With faith. Why is that? Because he says those that come near to him, those that approach him, there's no other way, those that approach him, be firmly convinced that he exists and that he will prove himself to be a rewarder of those who diligently seek him out. You know, I haven't heard God talk to me in a long time. I've never really had his word just open up to me, so therefore I really don't read it that much. I don't really pray that much because I never really had many of my prayers answered. Pretty much I have to just fight my own way and do it my own way and call my own shots because I'm not willing to let him come in and change my life. And then you wonder why that happens. Why? It's really simple. It's all based on our faith and trust and belief and firm persuasion of him. Again, the question, do you believe this? I mean, do you believe what it says, or do you think maybe it says something else? And if you do believe that, do you want to be well-pleasing to the Lord? Now, most of us would say, yes, I believe that. I'm not sure how much I believe it. I'm not sure if I really want to make a big deal about it. I'm not sure if I'm going to believe it once I get in my car and go home, but I believe it right now. And yes, I would like to be well-pleasing to the Lord, but I don't know how well-pleasing I want to be, especially if it's going to cost me something or make my life a little more difficult. And, and then if it's going to do that, then, then I'll just kind of hedge my bet because I'd really rather be in this relationship or, or do these kind of things that gratify my flesh. But yeah, I guess I really want to be well-pleasing to him. And I have a desire in me to bring him pleasure. And the scripture says that we must have faith and be firmly convinced that he is who he says he is. And he means what he says he means. And he will do what he says he will do. No matter what, no matter what your circumstances, come what may, period. And to live by faith, or to be well-pleasing to him, we have to live our life in the light of that belief. And what the Lord asked me is what I'm asking you today. I understand all that, but does that describe you? Is that your life in him? Probably not. Some areas, yeah, I don't mind surrendering my life to him because I don't really care about those areas either. But there's other areas over here where it means something to me. Then I want to control it myself, and I don't want to surrender that area to him because I have my right to be angry. I have my right to, to be happy the way I deem happiness. I have my right to what belongs to me. And, and then we wonder why we are in the situation that we're in. If it does describe you, hallelujah. That's fantastic. It's wonderful. But if not, then we must learn how to live by the faith that we each have as a gift that God said is the only way that we can please him. And the best way to do that is to learn how our faith grows and how we must learn to exist day by day in the faith he has. And this process that we go through, these are the how questions, the process that we go through to be able to live that way, and we do that by believing in his promises. If you and I, let me digress. You may have had a really good father that never lied to you. I didn't. I had a father that lied to me all the time. Um, matter of fact, he, was, uh, he got great joy out of getting us all excited about something he had no intention of ever fulfilling. I remember he would, uh, even when I was an adult with kids, he would call me on the phone and he would say, this is like in October, he'd call me on the phone and say, hey, I didn't know if you had planned on buying your kids a television for their room this Christmas. No, I really hadn't planned on doing that. Oh, good, good, good. Well, don't because that's what I'm going to be getting them for Christmas. I'm going to get them a television for their room. Oh, Dad, thanks, man. That'd be great. I really love that. We think I thought about doing that, but really couldn't afford it. But, but that'd be fantastic. I really appreciate that. Hey, it's no problem. I just, I love you kids, love you. I just want to bless you with that. Hey, that'd be great. Think the TV's ever showed up? Never. There's no need to because he already got his attaboys. You know, he already got what he wanted out of it, a lie. 
so that I would praise him and thank him for something that I believed in faith that never happened. And of course, it never turned out that way. And so therefore, I have the hardest time before I got saved and even in my Christian life, believing in this benevolent, loving God the Father, who's a better father than I was, who was a, you know, if, if I want to do, think this is good to give to my kids, he wants to even, even give more than that, because it was a struggle because of my earthly example. I could never believe my dad's promises. They were always conditional. You do this, I'll do this, maybe. And so you're always never quite measure up. You're always just a couple points short. Hey, I'm going to bless you big time if you make an 85. Well, Dad, you told me it was an 80, and I made an 83. No, change is an 85 now. Sorry, you lose. I mean, that's the way it always was growing up with my brother and I. And so God offers all these promises, and I have a choice. And the choice is to believe Unlike I've been wired and unlike my experience has been to always trust, but not really, because I don't want to get hurt if it doesn't turn out that way, or to jump in full force and just believe because God's character is better than Bo McCraney's character. You understand the difference? God says that we can trust his promises and that we need to believe his promises in order to let our faith grow. There's only two places in the New Testament where this word for promises is used, both of them by Peter. Here's 2 Peter chapter uh, 1, verses 2 through 4. Watch the promises he's talking about here. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's a promise through the knowledge of him who called us to glory and virtue, by which we have been given exceedingly and great, exceedingly great and precious promises. We have been given, we've been given everything that's necessary to live a, a righteous, God-honoring life. And on top of that, we have been given these, given these exceedingly great, beyond comprehension, precious promises from God. And the purpose of those promises? That through these promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature. To be saved, to be children of God, to be joint heirs with Christ, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So God has given us these promises for the sole purpose of us believing those promises and be partakers of the nature of God himself. We find in the very next chapter, or two chapters later, Peter uses the same word again. Therefore, talking about the end of all time, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being a fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Wow, that's kind of a tough time. Nevertheless, we, in spite of the coming judgment of God, according to his promise, same word, what's the benefit? Look for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Lord, I have no problem believing that promise. I got no problem at all that you prepared a place in heaven for me and that you're going to come and receive me unto yourself. And I believe that when I die, absent from the body, present with the Lord, I believe all those promises that I can't see that are way out there that I can't control. But I don't believe the promise here that, you're, that if I do this, you'll do that or that you love me this much or that there's nothing that can separate me from the love of Christ Jesus. I have no problem believing those promises, but a real hard time believing these promises. And, and why is that? So what exactly is a promise of God? You just looked up that word twice. A promise is an assurance God gives his people so they can walk by faith while they wait for him to work. And it may take days, weeks, months, 
years. It may not even be in your lifetime sometimes that God will fulfill his promise. We see that, that history in the Bible, but sometimes it takes forever for that to happen. But we live by faith knowing it will. We live by faith, trusting. We see that in Hebrews chapter 11. That none of these people saw this happen in their own life, and they, yet they looked for a bigger city, a different city, the kingdom of God. And the promises of God are based on his faithfulness of his nature, his credibility and his integrity. They're not based on whether he will or whether he won't or whether he has enough money or enough time to do what he said he would do. It's based on his nature and his credibility. My God gave his promise, and I am going to trust him. And for us to doubt his promises is to really doubt the nature of God. In the early 70s, there was a movie called Twice Given. I've shared it with you. I looked for it online. It's on uh, YouTube. It's a uh, very classic, old, corny Christian movie uh, done poorly back in the 70s. And in the movie, um, there was an evangelist named Tom Williams, who um, uh, we know, uh, have met before. And his wife came down with spinal meningitis, and she was in the hospital, and he was an evangelist at that time. And um, uh, the the story goes that... um, um, he had no insurance for whatever reason he had. So my wife's in the hospital, didn't expect her to make it through the night, and she did. And medical bills were just piling on, and he was a man who lived by faith. And so there's a scene in that movie that I forgot how powerful it was. I watched it um, uh, Friday. A uh, scene in that movie where he goes into the business office to tell the, uh, tell the lady, or the lady want to talk to him about his bill. And she is Helga the Stormtrooper. She's the one that only cares about the money and all that kind of stuff. Mr. Williams, uh, your wife's in the hospital, and uh, the bills are mounting, and here is an estimate of what her expenses are going to be. And he looks at it, and he kind of does like this and hands it back to her, a very polite man. And he goes, what do you say about that? Well, I say, that's a lot of money. He says, well, how do you plan to pay for it? Cash. Well, I notice you don't have any insurance, and you have your reasons for that. So do you have that much cash? No. Can you get that much cash? No. Well, how do you plan on getting that cash? Well, I'm going to ask my father. Does your father have that much cash? Oh, yes. Will he respond to you and give you the cash? Sure will. Well, here's how it is, Mr. Williams. I need $3,000 in here. Now, back in the 60s, that was big bucks, okay? You could buy a... Anyway, if you watch the Andy and Mayberries, you can buy a house for 3000 bucks back then, in those days. And, and so I need $3,000 in here. This was 9 o'clock in the morning by 3 o'clock this afternoon. Well, can you do that? I'll ask my father. Okay. And he gets up and he walks out. He gets in the elevator. Door closes. And he says this simple prayer. He says, uh, Father, it's Tom here. Pam is really, really sick. And they need $3,000 by 3 o'clock this afternoon. And I know you'll take care of it. That's it. Total faith. Elevator hits the bottom. It's a true story. They open the door. He walks out, and he's walking out. Some other pastor comes in, and how is she doing? She's doing fine. Our church prayed for you all last night. Uh, What needs do you have? Well, they want $3,000 by by 3 o'clock this afternoon. Praise God, our church prayed for you. We took up an offering, handed him an envelope with $3,500. He turned right around, got back on the elevator, went right back up, and when he walked into the office, the lady says, now look, Mr. Williams, I told you I have to be firm about this. And he simply handed her the check. My father responds like that. Isn't that amazing? And that's a, that's a mountaintop experience for him. I've had some of those mountaintop experiences myself. But they're only mountaintops because we spend all the rest of our time in the valley. But the reality is he wants us to live like that all the time. He's given us precious promises. And our faith grows when we truly trust him at his word. So there's a lot of promises that we can look at in Scripture during troubling times in which we face. I'm just going to share one with you. And it's simply this. No matter what you're going through, no matter how painful it is, no matter how alone you feel, no matter how hopeless it is, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says that in the Old Testament, and he says that in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 13. Two promises here in this verse. He says, let your conduct be without covetousness, 
be content with such things as you have. And here's this incredible thing that you have. For he himself, for God himself says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And if I believe that promise, then I may be able to boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, and almost under your breath, what can man do to me if God is my helper and he promises never to leave me or forsake me? I will never leave you nor forsake you. So in Deuteronomy 31 and Joshua uh, 1.5, I won't take the time right now. We can go through and look at those passages if you will. In Joshua, he commanded Joshua to lead the nation, and Joshua was a little uncertain about that, following in Moses' footsteps, and he kept saying, be strong and courageous. Here's what I want you to do. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Same thing in, uh, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31. I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a promise. Well, what does it mean? Well, let's look up some words. The word translated leave means to dismiss, neglect, let alone, or leave behind. You ever felt that way? That God's got everybody else in the palm of his hand but you. That God listens to everybody else's prayers but you. That God has infinite grace and patience with everybody else but you. And you get ready to pray, and instead of God saying, yes, my child, you feel like he's going, oh, it's you again? You're going to make me another promise you're not going to keep? You're going to just, you know, take my money and not pay me back? I mean, is that, is that, is that the kind of relationship we're having here? I just I don't even want to talk to you anymore, Lord. I will never leave you. I will never dismiss you. No, just, just, would you, just go. Just don't, don't sit, just go. I'll never neglect you, Dad. Dad, dad, is he saying that again? Dad, dad, come on, just walk faster. I'll never let you alone. I'll never leave you behind like a father who's walking so fast that his little kids can't keep up. I will never leave you. The word forsake means to abandon, to desert, or to leave in a lurch to leave in a bad situation. God, I trusted you, and now the bills are due because you told me to do that. Where, where are you? You're gone. Left me in a lurch. I will never do that to you. Never abandon. Never desert, even though everybody else does. I will never do that. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then the word never. Does it really mean what it says? Or does never mean maybe never to me, or maybe kind of sometimes, or if he's on a good day. But, you know, is this one of those promises which is just all one way and one direction? Are there, is there any wiggle room here? The word ne- never means not at all, by no means, absolutely not. In every circumstances, no matter how unfaithful you are, there's no qualified qualifier here, I will never leave you nor forsake you if, doesn't say that, it's a statement from the character of God. And this promise is to each of us, found both in the Old and New Testament, but the question is to us, do you believe it? If you put your name here, God will never leave Steve. He will never forsake Steve. Well, I feel forsaken, but that doesn't mean he's forsaken you. I deserve to be forsaken. I would forsake me. I've forsaken other people in my life for doing less than I've done to God. And so therefore, won't God treat me the way I treat others? Gosh, I hope not. I will never, not at all, absolutely not, by no means banish the thought, leave you or forsake you. No qualifier about a circumstance. No qualifier about your guilt in that circumstance. No qualifier about maybe you're the one that sinned. None of that is in there. It's simply a statement, a categorical statement. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So what does it mean? I know what it says. And if I'm supposed to believe this and trust in this, what does it mean? It means God, it's like he's having a conversation with you. I, God, will never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, leave you. 
I will not walk away from you. I'll not dismiss you. I'll not neglect you. I'll not just turn my back on you. I'll not crush you. I'll not abandon you. I will never do that. Put your name here, Steve. Statement from God. Steve, I will never do that to you, nor forsake you, ever, ever, ever. Again, here's where faith comes in. This is a statement in his word, and the question is whether or not you believe it. You either will or you won't. If I do believe it, and I believe it part ways, then you're only going to be pleasing God part ways. But if you believe him, if he says this statement just categorically, boom, here it is, and you and I believe, no, not true always, only when I'm a good son to him that he won't leave me and forsake me. But if I'm a bad son, you know, and I spill my milk at, at the restaurant or something of that nature, then he's just going to slap me down and make me sit in a car. Who, who you are defaming is the character of God. I will never leave you or forsake you. And if I do believe it, do I believe it fully, without reservation? Do I rest on it and trust on this promise with the same fervency and intensity as the promise that he's preparing a place for me? And when I die, I'll be in his presence forever? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Again, this is in Joshua 1, and again, I won't look at these verses. You can look at those when you get home. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, I understand that, Steve, and I understand the message, and I appreciate it, and kind of encouraging, and that's great, but when all the fanfare is over, and I'm sitting at home at night, and all I can see is problems, and all I can see is bills, and all I can see is broken relationships, and I'm hopeless, and seem like I have no future, does the promise still hold true? What happens when I feel like God has forsaken me? What happens when I pray and 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 by no means picking on you, Meredith, but my baby's still in the hospital? What happens when I pray, God, please don't let my mom die. Please don't let my mom, and she dies anyway. What happens when I don't get the job and a check doesn't come through and a doctor's report gets even worse than the last time I went? What about those times? What happens when I feel like You've abandoned me. Even though the word says you don't, how do I respond? I mean, what am I supposed to do when I feel rejected? I feel forsaken. I feel like he's left me behind. And he sometimes is never there, I think, when I need him the most. How do I live with those feelings of abandonment? And what do I do? Because if you're honest with yourself, we all struggle with those. There have been times in your life, there may be times now, where you feel, God, if you really loved me, you would have done this sooner or kept me from doing this, but you didn't. And now I'm suffering the consequences from that. How do I live with those feelings? I do want you to turn to Psalm 27. Psalm 27 tells us exactly how to deal with those feelings. And it's, it's like this, this faith affirmation here. David makes this very personal. Even in the dark nights, even when things are going bad for David, even when he's struggling, even when he, he's not sitting on the, the, the throne of the kingdom, even when Saul's trying to kill him, even when his family has rejected him, David is struggling. Here's what he says. The Lord is my light and my salvation. That's the fact. Whom shall I fear? I want you to see this is personal. My, my, I, my. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Of whom shall I dread and be in terror of? The government, Antifa, Businesses closing down, the election coming up, uh, crisis, economy collapses. Well, what am I supposed to be fearful of? Now, I want you to know that this is present tense here. The Lord is my light and my salvation. I even in your dark circumstances, yes, because I believe it's true. And therefore, whom shall I fear? The Lord is 
the strength of my life. I declare him to be the strength of my life. Therefore, of whom shall I be afraid? So, so what was it like? What, what brought you to that point? The fact that God was faithful in the past, he'll be faithful today and faithful tomorrow. Here's my past testimony. Verse number two, when the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumble and fell. They did. They just, they, they just, they just fell. Somehow God supernaturally took care of that. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what God wanted Israel to do. Several times in the Old Testament, when he parted the Jordan River, for example, on the other side of the Jordan River, take 12 stones, one for each tribe of Israel, and build this monument here. Why? So that when you're dead and your children's children's children say, what do these stones mean? Remind them how I brought you out of Egypt on eagle's wings. Remind them of what I did this day to deliver you. Remind them of how faithful I was in the darkest times of your life and therefore be couraged to realize I'm the same God who doesn't change. Though an army may camp about me, this is like an affirmation because this is something that could happen in the future. Though an army may camp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though wars may rise against me, in this I will be confident. Why? Because I don't care about that aspect of my life. What I care about is my intimacy with him. One thing I have asked for, one thing I've desired of the Lord, just one. Not that you will give me money to pay this month's rent, not that you will restore this relationship, not that you will have a political outcome to be the way we want it to, not that this illness will be healed, not any of those things. Instead, I just want to know who you are. I don't want to seek your hand. I want to seek your face. One thing that I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? Because I want to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire, to look closely, to, to investigate in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. This is in the future. It's a faith affirmation. He shall set me upon a rock. And that rock, of course, is Jesus. Verse number 10. When my father and my mother forsake me, when the people I should trust more than anyone forsake me, when, you know, a marriage can break apart and a husband can forsake a wife and vice versa and kids can forsake their parents and their parents can forsake their kids. But when my mother and father forsake me, then, even in that situation, I know the Lord will take care of me. And I have to believe that is true. That's a promise from God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And if I actually believed that and held on to that, then I would be able to boldly say this, and the Lord is my helper. And if the Lord is there with me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The second promise, man can't do anything from me. This particular quote is from Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is my helper. Turn to Psalm 118 real quick. Let me just show you a couple of these verses. I love this. You don't understand, Lord, I haven't lived a perfect life. I've sinned. I continue to sin. There's things I should do that I don't do. There's things I don't do that I should do. And Lord, I, I just, I'm, I'm just caught in this Laodicean, lukewarm kind of morass of being a six or a seven or something of that nature when I know you want more. So Lord, what do I do? You're my helper. Show me how I don't need to fear. Psalm 18, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Why? For his love, his benevolence, his grace, his long-suffering, it's not what it says, his mercy, his mercy to the guilty, his mercy to the suffering, his mercy to the one who feels forsaken, his mercy to the one who is struggling with abandonment, his mercy endures forever, no matter what. His mercy endures forever. Therefore, 
let Israel today, right now say, his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now, today say, his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord right now, today, this Sunday, say, his mercy endures forever. Let Steve McCraney, let Debbie, let Carol, let everybody in here today, right now, say, his mercy endures forever. In, in what way? Well, I called on the Lord in distress, past tense, and he answered me and set me in a broad place, large place. The Lord, is, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. Wonderful passage here. It is better to trust in the Lord whom you can't see than to put confidence in man whom you can. It is better to trust in the Lord whom won't, maybe won't give you what you need right now, even though you think you need it, than to trust man that will satisfy your need this instant. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes, rulers, government. It is better to trust in the Lord. Why is that? I want you to note the past, present, and future in these verses here. All the nations surrounded me, past tense. But in the name of the Lord, I will, future tense, destroy them. Past tense, I'm surrounded. Future tense, I will destroy them. But I'm stuck in present tense, somewhere between those two. They surrounded, past tense, me. Yes, they surrounded past tense me. But in the name of the Lord, I will future tense destroy them. They surrounded past tense like bees. They were quenched like fire of thorns. For the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You pushed past tense me violently that I might fall. But the Lord helped me past tense. The Lord is, present tense, my strength and song. He has become, present tense, my salvation. Now, this is a promise. Bad in the past, I believe God will take care of it in the future. I don't really see a way out of this, but I serve a mighty God. God's promises says he will never leave me or forsake me no matter what I'm going through, that he's there with me in the fiery furnace. He's there with me in the hospital bed. He's there with me with, when I'm suffering from deep despair and depression. He will never leave me, never forsake me. In fact, he's on my side. He is my helper. So what do I fear man when God Almighty lives in me? So how do I live by faith? How do I let my faith grow? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. How now do I apply this to my life? And how can my faith grow to a point where I can trust him for my daily needs? How can I learn to trust him for my daily bread the way I trust him for all eternity? How is that even done? You have a choice. Same choice that I have. We either believe God's word or not believe his word. And belief, I mean, like the story I told you about the great Blondin, who was the guy that walked across Niagara Falls, and everybody believed he could do it, and everybody believed he could push a wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls because he actually did with like a 200 pounds of grain in it. And then when he said, now, would anybody like to get in that wheelbarrow? Only those who truly believed him did. And of the crowd of hundreds of people, only his mother did. You know why? It was just his mother. Because she knew his character. Because she trusted him. Because she had an intimate relationship with him. God will never leave you or forsake you in any reason, no matter what you have done. Let that sink in for a second. Your worst fears, 
your worst failures, the things that you're most ashamed about, the things that it took you two weeks to even ask God to forgive you because you messed up that bad. And even then you, you look at him like a beat dog because you're afraid he's just going to be angry at you and scowl at you because of this horrific sin. No matter how bad it was or is or will be, he will never forsake you and never abandon you. That's his word based on his character. The choice is whether or not you believe it. And if you do believe it, it, it's like a breath of fresh air. Ah. So really, there really is nothing that can separate me from the love of Christ. Yeah, Romans 8 tells you about that. Height or death or this or that and the other, principalities or demons or things to come or things not to come or things that were and all that stuff. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Under any circumstances, no matter what you've done, no matter how selfish or how evil, to live by faith is to choose to believe his promises. I choose to believe different than I feel. I choose to believe different than it seems logical to think. I choose to believe God is true to his word. Why would I call God a liar when I could believe what he says? Well, God, I know you won't leave me or forsake me, but I'm going to do this sin again. I know I am. What? what? You don't think he knows that? You don't think, you think that he only has a relationship with you when we're in perfect obedience to him? Paul wasn't in perfect obedience to him. I'm so thankful he doesn't treat us like we treat each other, aren't you? God will never leave me or forsake me, no matter how bad it is, no matter how terrible it is, no matter if the situation I'm in is all my fault and I'm having to suffer the consequences of that to learn a lesson God wants me to learn, he's not going to abandon me to that. He's still there, always. And I might have to say that to myself, pray that to him several times a day. Whenever those evil thoughts come, whenever those con condemning thoughts come whenever those, oh yeah, he'll never leave or forsake Karen, but you're toast, Steve. No, it doesn't work that way. It's, it's another way of taking every thought captive to the truth and obedience of Christ or to have our mind be transformed by the renewing of our mind that it talks about in Romans chapter 12. And this is just one way your faith can grow. But if you don't, if you don't, if you don't grab hold of this one, you'll never get to the other ones. Because we are really good at self-condemnation, are we not? Here's what Oswald Chambers says about this. This is from June 4th. This is called the never forsaking God. I want you to listen to his words. Here's what he says. And the verse he used, of course, is the verse we just talked about, Hebrews 13.5. Says, what line of thinking do your thoughts take? Do I turn to what God says or to my own fears? Do I believe Him or I believe what I think they should say? Am I simply repeating what God says or am I learning to truly hear Him and then respond after I have heard what He says? And here's what He says I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So looking at these words, here's what Oswald Chambers says. The first phrase, I will never leave you. Not for any reason, not my sin, my selfishness, my stubbornness, my waywardness, nothing. Have I really let God say to me that he will never leave me? If I have not truly heard this assurance, then I need to calm down, sit quietly, and let him tell me again. And again, and again, until it becomes real to us. I will never forsake you. Sometimes it's not in the difficulty of life, but in the drudgery of it that makes me think God will forsake me. There, when there is no major difficulty to overcome, no vision from God, nothing wonderful or beautiful, just the everyday activities of life, washing clothes, raising kids, going to work, do I hear God's assurance even in these? 
or to only hear his insurance when he wants me to go on the mission field and do something incredible. We have the idea that God is going to do some exceptional thing, that he is preparing and equipping us from extraordinary work in the future. But as we grow in his grace, we find that God is glorifying himself here and now, in this very moment, no matter what we're doing. If we have God's assurance behind us, the most amazing strength becomes ours. And we learn to sing, glorifying him even in the ordinary days and ways of life. I hate my job. Okay. God can be glorified in the midst of that. He will never leave you or forsake you. Gosh, it seems like I had these big plans in my life, but all I'm doing is wiping noses and changing diapers, and my house is always a mess, and there's all these kids running around here, and I just, I don't know what to do. But God will glorify himself in the midst of that, and even in all of that, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The question is whether we believe it or not. Whether we believe or not believe what the Lord says to us. And that's where the battle is won or lost. He either is true to his word, to you, irrespective of your circumstances, or he is not. And if he is not true to, to you in this promise, how can you feel confident that he's true for you in the promise where he says he's preparing a place for us? If he lies at one thing, or if you can't trust him in one area, how can you trust him in another? It all comes as a package. When people want to know who I am, you tell them I am that I am. Everything about me is true. Those that come to God must believe that he is, that he follows his word, that this is the integrity of who he is, nature, that I make a promise, that I will keep a promise, even if you and I don't. And this is the first step in just believing his promises. And we only looked at one, really two today, of 3,000. Believing his promises that it's not meant for somebody out there better than you. It's meant for you and for me always. Amen? Let me pray.